Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Please join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers to today's program. My name is Fred Mifflin, President-elect of the Canadian Club of Toronto. Viewers, we're very pleased that you are participating with us today. The Canadian Club is proud to provide a forum for leaders in every aspect of society to share their ideas with us. We are committed to providing a welcoming venue for discussion and debate on issues that impact our lives. Through our programs and activities, we offer access to dynamic political, business, and public figures from around the world, like today's guest speaker, Elise Allen. Before I formally introduce Elise, here's a snapshot of some of our upcoming events. On February 12th, Brian Porter, President and CEO of Scotiabank, will share his views on the current economic climate to a sold-out crowd. And on February 16th, Amanda Lang, along with the Right Honourable Paul Martin, David Rosenberg and the Honourable Michael Wilson, will join us for the launch of a very special initiative, Canada 150, as we move towards Canada's 150th birthday. To order tickets or to learn more about the club, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. You can also join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDNCLUBTO or by using that hashtag. I want to express special thanks to today's event sponsor, Morneau Chappelle, celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. Represented by Hazel Claxton, Morneau Chappelle's Chief Human Resources Officer. Hazel, thank you for your generous support. I'd also like to recognize two groups of youth and young leaders who are with us today. Women in Management Association at Rotman, sponsored by Borden Ladner Gervais LLP, and Civic Action Diversity Fellows, sponsored by Green Soil Building Innovation Fund. Welcome and thank you for joining us. And now our guest speaker. GE has deep roots in Canada. It has operated here for over 100 years. Beginning in Peterborough, GE now operates across the country. GE is a global powerhouse known for bringing good things and good ideas to life. I think somebody else said that, Elise. <laughs> Throughout its history, GM, GE has adopted and transformed. Why? To keep pace with industrial changes, technology, and the global dynamics of a constantly evolving marketplace. Here at home, Elise Allen, President and Chief Executive Officer of GE Canada and Vice President GE, is a champion of change. She has dedicated her more than 30-year GE career to business innovation. Elise has contributed her expertise to advisory boards that have addressed our competitiveness, energy strategy, economic development, transportation plans, and access to credit. A distinguished executive, she has been widely recognized for her innovative ideas and leadership. GE Canada's president and CEO has been named a top 100 
Women of Influence by Women's Executive Network. The YWCA identified her as a woman of distinction in business, and Maclean's Magazine has called her one of Canada's most influential business leaders. In 2014, she was appointed a member of the Order of Canada for her community work and for her contributions to business. Elise has generously agreed to take questions after her speech, so please fill out the Q&A cards, which are on your tables. Our volunteers will come around to collect them. And now we're happy to have Elise speak to us about the future of work. Elise, the Canadian Club of Toronto's podium is yours. Thanks very much. How are you? Good day. Thank you, Morneau Chapelle, for lunch. We appreciate your sponsorship, and we're a great customer of theirs, and certainly appreciate the good work that you do for us, so thank you. Um, I hope I can provide you, after this great lunch, a little bit more substance and a little food for thought. So thank you very much, Fred, and to the Canadian Club for the opportunity to speak with you today. You know, there is, no, uh, there is no shortage of reports highlighting the dramatic economic and political changes that are taking place around the world. From my global perspective, I see a world that is changing on many dimensions. It's characterized by slow growth, influenced by China's economic rebalancing and deceleration, which has impacted global commodity markets. We have increased volatility. Look at oil and gas pricing. Look at changing political regimes around the world or even the weather. Burgeoning middle classes are demanding a better quality of life but are confronted with slower economies. Unrest is caused by high youth unemployment and underemployment, and we have increasing environmental imperatives. There's a lot going on. <clears throat> but amidst all these dynamics, the most profound revolution is the disruption caused by the emergence and the globalization of exponential technologies. We have all these innovative technologies that have been developing beneath the radar for a long time, but now, for a variety of reasons, these technologies are taking off. And if you look at some of the work by Ray Kurzweil, he shows us that when these technologies take off, the growth is actually exponential, is and will cause great disruption. This technology revolution will dramatically impact all of us and the future of work. These digital and technological shifts present huge challenges to Canada, but also tremendous opportunity. You know, the key to Canadians addressing these challenges was provided to us over 150 years ago, and not by any business guru, but actually by a scientist, Charles Darwin. Back in 1859, you will recall that Darwin published his famous theory, which simply put, says that an entity that endures must have the ability to adapt. In times of rapid change, those who adapt the quickest will survive. And it's equally true for living things, companies, and countries. 
And that's what it will take for Canada and Canadian business to survive in this economy. Today, we face digital Darwinism, the risk of becoming obsolete as technology evolves faster and faster. So I thought with you at lunch, I would take a look at three disruptors quickly. The industrial internet, or the internet of things, advances in manufacturing. You often see the consumer world, but I thought I'd draw back the curtain on the manufacturing world. And also the emergence of what we fondly call the global brain. My message to you is that no one in this room is immune from these forces of change and the disruption that they will create. And as business, government, and community leaders, we need to understand these drivers, anticipate their impact on the future of work, and adapt quickly if we are to succeed. So first, let's talk about this industrial internet, AKA the Internet of Things, also known as the fourth industrial revolution. You know, GE just released the results of its 2015 Global Innovation Barometer. It's a survey we do around the world, 26 countries. And it actually includes Canada and features some Canadian insights. And I'm very encouraged by its results. Back in the 2014 survey, 18 months ago, the findings showed Canada at the bottom of 26 countries when executives talked about their understanding of investment, the importance of investing in the industrial internet. In fact, at that time, only 40% of the executives viewed data and analytics as important drivers of innovation. However, this year we see a big change, a dramatic change, with 75% of the respondents stating the industrial internet's importance. That's good to hear. So what is this fourth industrial revolution, as some are calling it? What, it's, what is it really about? A connected device or machine becomes something new. Think about the smartphone. It was just a phone, but then it became connected. And what happened? What happened to the whole consumer side and usage and functionality of that phone? Now apply that to the industrial world or the B2B world as we call it and consider the impact of 50 billion machines, 50 billion machines becoming connected by 2020. The industrial internet is all about machines, what we fondly call it GE, the big iron, connecting with our new capabilities around big data. It is and will continue to change the way we work. We can now collect and process tremendous amounts of data that was previously prohibitive. Why is that? Three reasons. First of all, we've had tremendous advances in sensing technology. The second is we've had an increased rate of speed in the ability to process huge amounts of data. And third, the costs to do that massive processing have come down dramatically. The result is that machines can now predict, react, and in fact, be social. They can communicate seamlessly with each other and with us. 
That is why GE is actually focused on becoming a digital industrial company. We're on a trajectory to be the largest software company in the world by 2020. That's a far cry from your par parents' memory of us in tea kettles and lighting, old lighting. We think it is essential as we look at ensuring our customers' success now and in the future is this digital industrial focus. Think about GE's machines. Gas turbines, jet engines, locomotives, medical devices, they are becoming predictive. That allows us to actually fix them before they break. That has profound implications because you could actually have zero unplanned downtime. In fact, we've also developed something called Predex. And for those of you in the computer world, it's an operating platform where we and others, because we've made it open, can develop applications that will actually enable this industrial internet. Let me give you some examples of how this works. Two quick ones. Jet engines. I am sure that some of you somewhere have experienced a flight delay, maybe once or twice maybe even a cancellation. But did you know that 10% of those are actually caused by unscheduled maintenance events? With new self-learning sensing technology, we can move to predictive maintenance, where the plane talks to the tech folks. So while it's in the air, it communicates to the tech folks on the ground that there's an issue. And that issue can be addressed before the problem occurs. In the U.S. alone, that would prevent over 60,000 delays and cancellations a year. I saw a thumbs up on that one. <laughs> Let me just talk. I love talking about wind. Just briefly, the idea of machines talking to one another really comes alive for me when I think of the advances taking place in wind turbines. And because of this new remote sensing technology, all the advances in monitoring and diagnostics Wind turbines can now communicate with each other and actually adjust the pitch of their blades in a coordinated way as the wind blows through the wind farm, which impacts and improves the efficiency of that farm and helps to significantly reduce the cost per kilowatt of the wind, of, of the wind uh, being the power being generated from that wind farm. So really, this whole consumer internet that you've all experienced personally is now moving to the B2B world. And according to our innovation barometer, there is considerable optimism about this digital transformation. In fact, globally and in Canada, well over 60% of all the respondents cited positive anticipation of what this new world order could bring. So now let me talk about the second disruptor, the second force influencing the future of work is that of how we make things. It's changing in big time. In our research, we found that 85% of respondents anticipate a radical transformation in the industrial sector through advanced manufacturing. And you know what? They're right. At the core of advanced manufacturing is the idea of this ability to digitally link the design, with the product engineering, with the manufacturing, supply chain, and servicing into one cohesive intelligence system, which at GE we're calling the brilliant factory. And what makes it brilliant is that the factory equipment and computers can talk to each other over the internet in real time, 
sharing information, and making decisions real-time that will improve productivity, manage supply chain, and actually prevent possible downtime. How we make things, so that's the process, but now how we make things is also dramatically changing. I'm sure most of you have heard about 3D printing, additive manufacturing. You may think it's somewhat new, but do you know it's actually been developed for over two decades? But here are a few salient points from, let's say, a GE perspective. With 3D printing, you have more flexibility to produce prototypes faster and at lower cost. So engineers can now print one part. They can run and test it, and based on the test feedback, actually quickly adjust the digital design and reprint an improved version right away, rapid time. This accelerates considerably the cycle of design, prototyping, and production in a way that we just haven't seen before. Additive manufacturing also allows us to create completely new parts and products with new properties, a combination of new design and materials technology. Let's just think about design. Today, many parts are designed to fit the manufacturing process. In other words, you've got existing machine tools, so when you go to design what you're going to make next, a lot of times you actually make it work to the way you're going to produce it. With additive manufacturing, you don't have that constraint. Instead, you actually have more degrees of freedom in both the whole production and now the design. So products that maybe once consisted of multiple parts, small sub-assemblies, we might call them, you can now look at that sub-assembly as an integrated whole and print design one part, no more assembly. Additive can create also huge disruption to business models. Consider service for remote sites, like mines, or maybe shipping vessels at sea. These remote locations can have their own printers and their materials on site, so parts can actually be printed on location. Think of the impact this will have. Someone like me who is a supplier, that impacts supply chains, parts sales, inventory management. For the customer, though, they can be seeing all sorts of increases in productivity, safety, and even things like uptime, for example. Additive manufacturing can now be used to build everything from shoes, custom shoes, and braces, to medical implants, industrial components, for parts like airplanes, and perhaps one day, even human tissue. So, we've talked about two disruptors. Talked about the industrial internet, talked about advanced manufacturing. So let me talk about the third dynamic that I think is influencing how we work, and as I said, we fondly call it the global brain. This is all about the collective intelligence we can tap into around the world because we now have integrated digital communication network. With open source platforms and crowdsourcing, we can reach a distributed global talent pool and engage their creativity and passion for what we need. In Canada, we reached out to the global brain 
with a two-phase million-dollar challenge to address very specific environmental challenges in the oil sands. So we, GE, specified what the challenges were. Both phases generated applications from across the world. And in fact, at the end of phase one, our four winners, one came from India, another Netherlands, England, and Italy. Solving challenges in the oil sands, none of them had ever been there. GE is working on development agreements to test proof their concepts today. So here we were able to bring in this wealth of distributed talent to help solve our problems here at home. That is the power of the global brain. So in summary, let me just say the future of work is changing. Three forceful market dynamics are disrupting our way of doing business. This whole idea of the industrial internet, big data, big iron, connecting, these many new advances in, advance in manufacturing, and I didn't even get into robotics, artificial intelligence, which are real, live, happening today, and this whole idea of a connected human network, a global brain that we all can now access and leverage and engage. But as these changes gain momentum, we will see more disruptive business models emerging. Manufacturing and services may start to really converge. Manufacturers will be embedding more and more software into products so that upgrades will actually become service updates, not hardware-based. And at the same time, service companies like Google or Amazon, they might actually become custom manufacturers. We may see a level of distributed customization that we simply have never seen or experienced before. So are you ready? Are you and your organizations ready and able to adapt quickly to these emerging disruptive technologies? What do you need to think about? What do you need to do? So maybe I'll close with just a few suggestions and thoughts about what's next comment a little bit about technology, people, process, and education. You know, innovation happens on the fringes. Are you playing in that space and learning about new technologies before they hit that exponential growth curve? Because the fact is, if you're late, once we're all talking about it here, some would tell us that we've missed it. It may be very hard to catch up when those technologies really and are taking off. So how do you think about it as a leader? And how do you encourage your staff to explore, to test, to take risks, to not be with the people like us, but to go with the people that are playing in the space that's uncomfortable, that's new, that's different, that's innovative? All this innovation is also going to create significant strain on our current workforces. Over two-thirds of our Canadian executives cited a lack of talent as being a barrier to efficient innovation and believed that they have to reskill and retool their workforces. But as I learned, we have a Bromont facility in Quebec. It's an aviation facility. And what they have taught me at this plant, which we've had there for over 20 years, 
is that when you have the right attitude, the right tools, incredible support, and you invest, you can create a team that embraces change, relishes productivity, and loves to learn. Where are you on that effort with your teams? Are you making the investments we as business and organization leaders have to be making in our workforces to ensure that they are getting the skills and the insights they need to adapt to the technology innovation that is happening? We have also entered, I think, a new era of collaboration. We talk about it a lot. But I would say, and certainly our learnings at GE, is that we have to define this in a very new and different way. And taken to its extreme, this era is actually emerging into the new sharing economy. Even our innovation barometer captured this trend, which was interesting. This year's results showed that over 86% of the businesses are seeing an increase in the revenue created through collaboration a dramatic increase from about 60% last year. Are you embracing this trend? Are you defining what collaboration really means for your organization? How you work in a different and collaborative way, and do you have the skill set to do so? Are you assessing your vulnerabilities and opportunities? As we face these changing business models, we need to reassess our definitions of risk, and our approaches to managing it, to understand where the profit pools are going to reside in these evolving business models. And so let's talk just about culture and work style. GE is a learning organization. That is one thing I can say after my 30 years, it never stops. And we learn from others. And I've spent time visiting a lot of the newer companies that are out there, exploring how they think about culture, retention, and engaging the next generation worker. I know we have to adapt and quickly, and we have to evolve our culture to meet the future of work. We're learning from others all the time. Are you creating an attractive oasis for the nomadic workforce graduating this year? Would I have even asked you that question three years ago? <laughs> and just a final thought. How do we ensure that the next generation graduates with the right skills for the future of work? You know, for years, we've supported Actua, which inspires science and technology learning. I'm delighted that Jennifer Flanagan, who leads that organization, is here today. They reach over 220,000 youth nationally, working with 33 university and college partners, many of whom are also with us today, and I thank them for coming. In BC, we have Premier Clark just launched coding as a core curriculum. Our innovation survey shows that executives are seeking talent who can problem solve and bring creativity to the table. So we not only need that understanding of STEM, but we also need people who can deal with all the vagaries, varieties, ambiguity coming around the corner and bring that problem solving and that creativity to the table. You know, I started my remarks describing a global world characterized by volatility and disruptive technologies. At GE, we call it a figure it out world now, a figure it out world. We want a next generation who engages in those challenges, thrives on that ambiguity, 
and plays offense with volatility. Digital Darwinism is a real risk of organizations. This is an exciting time. It's characterized by rapid technology innovation and growth that will impact all aspects of the future of work. No one is immune. Those who succeed are the collaborators who have built resilient and flexible organizations that can and will adapt quickly to the market's volatility and opportunity. I look forward to working with you in these challenges and exciting times ahead. Thanks for your time today. I look forward to your questions. Thanks very much, Elise. And uh, as I mentioned, Elise will take some questions. Sure. Um, so I have a couple here that have been handed in, but you have, if you have others, please submit them. Uh, this is a great question. GE, GE has undergone an enormous restructuring in the past two years, including uh, financial services and the creation of a software business. Mm -hmm. What lessons have been learned along the way during this great change, and how has it impacted how you do business in Canada today? Okay, great question. Um, so I would first say yes. So the first question is yes, we have, for those that don't know GE, we have done quite a portfolio change where we made a major shift moving from our financial services business in order to bring more value to the shareholders and pivoting into a truly industrial company. And with all the technology innovation that I talked about, we, have a real, we had a realization starting three or four years ago that the need to become a digital industrial company was going to be the essence of sort of the next transformation in GE's longevity and successful history. So we have made this portfolio shift, having sold about $140 billion worth of our capital business. A lot of the capital business is almost all sold last year. And adding to our industrial portfolio last year, closing on the acquisition of Alstom. So just for those that don't know the company, a little bit of, of background on us. So what have we learned? And I think one of the key learnings is that you can never move fast enough. Speed has become so critical in, I think, the stage that we are in. I think we've always recognized the importance of moving fast when you're doing a restructuring. It's always hard, and the faster you make the decisions and get through with it, the sooner you get on to being where you have, going where you have to go. But I think in this time, because of some of the comments I made in my remarks, in this time of technology innovation, that if we don't move fast enough, we'll miss the opportunities that are in the market, or we will simply miss those innovations. Think of all the volatility that's going on. That volatility means that that opportunity might be there today, it might not be there tomorrow. If you don't move there quickly, you miss it. And so we have to be able to, we're focusing very much on how do we be, as a big company, just more and more entrepreneurial trying to ensure that we are empowering our front lines to make their decisions, have distributed decision-making, distributed action, you know, and a new set of beliefs that just keep us focused on the customer, focused on the market, moving fast. I think those are some of the real critical components in, our cult in the cultural evolution that we're going through. Great. Thank you. 
this is a question that is near and dear to my heart as a father of a liberal arts graduate daughter, and I didn't write the question. With all the attention placed on acquiring talent with software and data analytical skills, do you still see a place in this digital industrial world for liberal arts educated people? Oh, I love the question. <laughs> As a science grad from a liberal arts school, I thank you for that. But you know, I think what we have learned, and we were actually talking about this internally when I was writing the remarks a little bit, because I think what we are learning as a company is that we need both. And the innovation barometer, the findings from that have really confirmed it. When I looked at last year, in Canada, one of the biggest barriers to innovation and success that business executives cited last year was they didn't have enough out-of-the-box thinkers. It is, a, it is a world where technology is so key and core right now. And so we need people who aren't afraid of technology, who embrace it, who are comfortable with it, and who may have varying degrees of understanding of it, but aren't afraid of it. But more and equal, or I would say equally importantly, we need people who understand what that technology, how it might disrupt and impact our business models, the opportunities it might create, the challenges and disruption it might cause. And don't panic around that because they don't understand it, but can see their way through it, can deal with that ambiguity, can deal with that uncertainty, and can be creative about the solutions. I mean, you just think of all these new um, companies that have emerged, whether you're talking about Uber, Airbnb, all these um, new medical device companies and DNA and genome, uh, things that people as a consumer couldn't access before that now you can make decisions on. Now that's going into the business world. Think of the disruption it caused in the consumer world in many of those markets. Now that's going to continue at an even faster pace. We need people that understand the science of it, people that can deal with the tremendous amount of data that will come with it and work through that, and people that can deal with the disruption to the business models. There's a place, there's a place for people that have all these interests, but it is different than the way we thought about it before. So yes, go for liberal arts, go for science, design. It's all, there's a space, but it's not it's in different places and where we used to look for it. That, that is music to my ears. <laughs> um, we've got a couple of questions on intellectual property, so I'll do okay. my best to blend them together. And, and how will a manufacturer protect intellectual no. property in its products when anybody can reproduce a 3D printer or a number no. of other things? And there will always be room for lawyers. <laughs> you know, the, um, is thrilled. Yeah, yeah, there's the table. <laughs> you know, when you think about the, I implication, the IP implications of a lot of the examples I gave you, and I could have gone into it in greater depth, but it really is a challenging new time. Uh, when you think of, you know, where does data reside? Who owns data? How do you deal with drawings? If you're going to do remote printing, if the customer's going to do it. And that's where I go back to very very disruptive business models, where the money is made, how you price, what you're selling is changing. And, and that's cool. If you like, sort of, you know, it's exciting. It's interesting to think about all this. But it can also be very frightening, and you have to be thinking about it because it can happen suddenly. 
It can happen quickly and it can come out of left field, right? It can come from a direction that you simply didn't anticipate. Um, so IP, I think, will be a core area of discussion uh, from many different fronts, many, many different angles. Thanks. So we've got two last... I don't have the answers to it, other than to say that we know it's an area where you'll want competency. So two last questions. One on healthcare. Startup Health in New York is a great example of GE getting involved and behind highly innovative startup community. What role is GE Health playing in Canada with respect to the startup world? Yeah, I'll talk briefly about just across, because I know there's folks from lots of different industry. We've certainly been working very closely with GE Ventures um, in Canada to make sure that GE Ventures is integrated and involved with um, the startup community here. Uh, so whether it's Mars, who is doing tremendous things, or Ryerson, who is also leading the way, Communitech, we have so many great examples of of innovative groups, all that's going on down at Western. I feel I'm looking at the audience thinking, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now because there's somebody I didn't mention. But um, we have a tremendous amount of work, and certainly as GE, in terms of our innovation center in Calgary, uh, as well as the work that we're doing with a number of these um, startup communities and incubators and accelerators, uh, and with the venture capital community, we're trying to make sure that, A, as a company, we take full advantage of the brilliance that we have here in Canada and the entrepreneurship uh, and the entrepreneurial spirit and efforts that are going on. And GE Health, uh, we just announced um, just two, I guess it's two weeks ago now, in Mars, a, a new startup in uh, stem cell therapy that's very exciting, first in the world, to figure out um, sort of mass manufacturing of stem cells, and that uh, where the investment has gone here uh, in, in partnership with CCRM uh, into the Mars Center. So we're very excited about that. Some great work at Humber Hospital leading the way in terms of new approaches to digitization. And so we are investing in startups, we're collaborating with startups, and we have got many, many different models. And I think as a business community, we just, I see more of that happening, and we have to continue to embrace the startup community and help them through that difficult stage of commercial, commercialization and scaling. I think everyone is very good at startups. I think the challenge, and I think many of you in the room know this, is that that capability to drive from startup to commercialization and scalability. And multinationals and big, big companies can play a key role in that. Um, and we're working to do that with licensing technology, venture funding, strategic investments, um, as well as supply chain, where we invest heavily in our supply chain to help them grow and scale and grow with us. So the final question is a people question. Okay. And I'm blending a couple of themes here. What's the most important competency of your leadership team? And how do you deal with the, quote, human factor where people are not able to adapt to digital technological change? That's rolling in a couple of questions. Right. I cheated. First of all, my team is great. So <laughs> part of it is their patience in putting up with me. So that's probably their most important competency. But, um, but I think, you know, when you look at the leadership team today, I think this ability to connect the dots, you know, things are just more complex. Nothing is quite as straightforward. And when you want to collaborate, you need to find who are the right partners. You need to be able to assess them. 
Um, and you need to be able to see who can work together and what does that model look like. So there's an ability to have analytics of understanding what the problem is, but creativity in how you think about solving that challenge and make sure that you're working on the right problem. So data and analytics to understand the problem and define it, and then creativity to understand and be open-minded to, to who and how will you address that issue, that problem that we have. Great. Um, thank you very much. Answered. Great. Thank Great you again questions. for your time today. So I'd now like to invite Willa Black, a director of the Canadian Club, to formally thank Elise. Thank you, Fred. Ms. Allen, on behalf of the Canadian Club to Toronto, of Toronto, I'd like to thank you for sharing your passion for excellence, innovation, and results here this afternoon. Many of us are nervous about the pace of change that surrounds the way we live, work, and play but you compel us to embrace it. As you say, and through the many examples you gave us in advanced manufacturing, the industrial internet, and the global brain, the digital and technological shifts presents huge opportunities. As a staunch proponent of investments in science, research, and innovation, we thank you for your tireless advocacy on behalf of those important sectors. Please accept our deep appreciation for all that you do to enhance Canada's business climate and for always putting your imagination to work for the good of our country. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Willa. I'd also like to echo Willa's, com Willa's comments and thank Elise for joining us today. And also thanks very much to Morneau Chappelle, our event sponsor, for your support. Before I adjourn today's meeting, I want to draw your attention to the event survey cards on your tables. Uh, we're always looking for ways to improve your experience, so please take a minute to help us by sharing your thoughts and comments. This concludes our program today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We're grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. We'd also like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, and VVC for live streaming today's event. To learn more about the club, please visit us at CanadianClub.org. Thanks again for joining us. This meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>